ora, Koa and O'Brien tuku ingoa, te kaurungi o Waituhi o Tamaki, no mai haere mai. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, Waituhi o Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2022 event. We hope you enjoy it. From the front, supported by the Embassy of the United States of America. Raised in the projects of Washington, D.C., by a father born 35 years after the abolition of slavery who was barred from school, Harold Hillman is an author and international business and leadership coach whose family legacy is just one of the experiences that have shaped his life. Attending college where he first encountered white people, he obtained a PhD in psychology, married, had two children, and served in the military, all whilst harboring the secret that he was gay. Eventually outing himself, he took up a position on Clinton's task force to undo the military's homosexual ban. Hillman is the author of five books, including The Imposter Syndrome, Fitting In, Standing Out, and his latest, Empathy, in which he argues that authenticity, logic, and empathy are essential for true leadership in business and in life. He speaks with Andrew Whiteside. Thank you very much. Lovely to see you all. Ena uh, mana. In a reo, in a iwi tenakoto katoa. Uh, ko Andrew Whiteside, toko ingoa, tenakoto katoa. So, my name is Andrew Whiteside. I'm an interviewer, a journalist, and reviewer through my website, andrewwhiteside.com. I'm replacing David Downs, who was supposed to be here, but unfortunately couldn't make it. Um, and I'm rather pleased about that because this man is rather amazing. And so, I'm really delighted that I get to meet you and I get to interview you. And uh, you're all here to see. Harold Hillman. Before we begin, a big thank you to uh, the Embassy of the United States of America, who have supported the festival and particularly um, this event. Harold Hillman, hello. Hello, Andrew. It is, I, I would like to also just say thank you to the U.S. Embassy. Um, I, th that's huge for me when I am reflecting back on my life and, um, and my career to be sponsored by the U.S. Embassy is like, you, you know, you, it's <laughs> just a huge thing. And I really do appreciate um, that very much. What a, what a strong endorsement. Well, it's wonderful um, to be here with you. Um, we've chatted a few times on the phone. That's right. Twice, setting this up and, um, and got on really well, which is, is good. That's it's right. It's a very good thing. Um, <laughs> we can't see you because these lights are really yeah. bright, but I'm assuming that you all know Harold, you know about him, but I'll just do a, a quick recap. Uh, he uh, has been an educator, he's worked uh, uh, as a serviceman in the United States um, Services. He has his own company, I'm going to read it out, Sigmoid Curve Consulting Group. That's right. He's a leader in leadership, so he's someone who understands leadership, he brings change to organizations, and uh, one of his uh, major philosophies, if you've read his book, and I know you all have, uh, is about empathy and authenticity. And so today, we've had a, a brief chat about this. One of the things for me about Harold is that I don't think you can separate out the books, the work, the philosophy, the things that Harold puts out to the world. I don't think you can separate that from you as the person, as the man. And so today, we're going to go on a journey through Harold's life, some key moments, some key times, to see how he became the man he is and how those values were already in him but were developed and, and honed by his experiences because it's your experiences that make, make you who you are. That's so, right. 
So welcome. So before we go, how about uh, go on? How about a round of applause for my dear friend Harold here? Thank you. I wish I could see them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think if you lean slightly forward, you can see these little heads. That's all with right. masks. That's which right. Is great I want to see faces. All of you with, uh, <laughs> with masks. So to tell that story, um, I want to take you back to your past, into your childhood. Okay. And um, I'm wondering if you can paint a picture of what your life was like as a child. Just to begin with, you were born mid-20th century yes. in, a, in Washington, DC, Washington, D.C., in a housing project. That's so right. I want to know, what was family life like? What was your family like when you were a small boy? I really uh, loved my family and the, the four kids. Uh, we still are very connected. I have two older brothers and a younger sister. And um, we've been pretty close all our lives. My sister and I were closer because we were, clo we were the two youngest and so closer in age. And then my two older brothers, they were closer as well. So we were like two little clumps there. Um, and uh, look, we had, the, we had some awesome parents. We really did. I, I spoke about my father last night. Um, my, my father was a, a tradesman. He uh, repaired elevators at the U.S. Navy Yard for what felt like 20-something years as I was growing up. My mother was a maid. Um, my father never went to school. That was the scenario back in 1905 when he was born, when little black kids weren't, it was illegal for little black kids to go to school in the state of Georgia then. And so my father never went to school. My mother went to school in Virginia. She was 20 years younger than my father. Virginia's a southern state uh, as well, but uh, she went to school, but she dropped out in the 11th grade because to help her family mm -hmm. with income. And so um, my parents put a big premium on, uh, on all four of us, certainly making it through high school, if not um, further up. We lived in a housing project, and, uh, and it was an all-black neighborhood. Uh, my world was all black. Um, I know that when I came to New Zealand, when I said all black, it has a different meaning. Indeed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> But we lived in an all-black neighborhood. I went to an all-black church, all my relatives, all, every schools, everything. And so even though the title underprivileged was often imposed on people living in the projects, we didn't know what that meant because yeah. it was life as usual for us. And uh, it, was, it wasn't really until my teen years that I started to understand racism and segregation and discrimination and things like that. But as a kid, we were happy kids um, playing out and about. Our neighborhood began to get more dangerous, uh, maybe in uh, toward the mid-60s or so. We moved in there uh, right around 1958 or so. And then in the mid-60s, more fatherless homes, uh, more crime. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was more dangerous to just be out and about. What, what was causing that? It was, I, I just think a, um, I think a big part of it was the, the festering social unrest mm -hmm. in general um, across society. But a lot of people were, uh, a lot of, especially teenagers, no aspiration, uh, a lot of them dropping out. And so um, it felt like the default was then sort of crime 
and those types of things. And my two older brothers, they were more sophisticated, they were more streetwise. So my, my two older brothers, um, they, they had a big network out there. They seemed to be able to maneuver and to navigate. Uh, my sister and I, we were more, we stayed in a little bit more. I, I tell people that I was Steve Urkel before there was Steve Urkel, <laughs> if you all know who Steve Urkel is. <laughs> Did you have the braces? The, yeah. I didn't, have the, I didn't have the braces, but I was a little academic kid. Yeah. And so I was, as I mentioned um, in, the, uh, in the story last night, I read a lot. That was my way of... of um, uh, taking myself to different places, mm. and I just stay. I was in, in inward, and then when I went to uh, school, I had friends at school. I loved going to school, mm. uh, but yeah, and increasingly, particularly towards the late '60s or so, I didn't have a large social network in my neighborhood. I had started then, uh, and particularly when I went out of the district to go to high school. I'd started developing a broader social network out here with kids who were from more affluent neighborhoods, black kids from more affluent neighborhoods. And so, yeah, I, um, but it, it was, it, I wouldn't call it a hardship at all. Mm. We always had food on the table. We didn't have um, extravagant things. We didn't have a car. Uh, we didn't have a color TV. Uh, we didn't have all those fancy things that when we watched the Brady Bunch on TV, we saw <laughs> right on the screen. Um, you know, dogs and double-story homes and maids and things like that. And those telephones that had the really long cords. Yes. That's what you amazed me as a child. That yes. And all the appliances. And, you know, New Zealand's affluent relatively, but yeah, all of that, it was extraordinary. <laughs> so so your, your family life was stable. Your parents stable. were loving. Your they father, were. As, as you related last night, um, really wanted you to get an education because yes. he hadn't one. He That's hadn't right. had one. That's right. So you, you spoke about the fact that he was um, reading to you even though he was illiterate. He, couldn't, he literally couldn't read, so he was talking about things that he had heard of. That's right. And was telling you about them. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, it, it's a... Um, I have, even though I've carried that memory, it's, one of the, it's just one of those things that's dear uh, to my heart. I have never spoken about it mm. until last night. Um, and it was, it, 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 my father had a passion for ensuring that his kids, but particularly he, he sort of honed in on me and my sister, mm. that the two of us were going to love books. That's a testament of his love for you, though, as well, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, That he really wanted is. you to have a better life. He wanted, he saw what the world was like, and he wanted you to transcend that. That's right. And that, that's quite remarkable. That, it, that's it is remarkable. It is remarkable mm. for, a, um, for a man who never went to uh, school. What I didn't get to, um, to say last night was that um, when I earned my PhD in 1983, uh, my father was in a nursing home. Uh, he was riddled with dementia the last uh, seven years or so of his, uh, of his life. And um, so I went to visit him with my PhD mm. and, um, and reached over and uh, put it in his hands. <laughs> and he recognized in you what it was? And um, there, was there was this um, uh, brightness in his eye 
There was a smile on his face, and I just needed to um, put it in his hands to say thank you. What an amazing moment. Um, what was your sense of the wider world outside of where you were living, the community? Did that, when you, when you were a small boy, were you yeah. aware of the dynamics going on in the country? I wasn't, uh, not until um, I was 12 years old. And that was when Martin Luther King was assassinated in April of 1968. Prior to that, I was just a, I was a 12-year-old kid. You know, um, go to school, come home, out and about, that type of thing. I honestly didn't know a whole lot about the broader events out there. Um, race became real for me on the night that Dr. King was assassinated. I was, um, uh, my sister and I were downstairs. I think my two older brothers were out. I believe it was on Eastern, East Coast time in the States. I believe it was something like 8 o'clock, 8 p.m. or something. And my sister and I heard this blood-curdling scream from upstairs. It was my mother. Mm. Uh, she just screamed like we had never heard her scream before. So we ran upstairs, and she, she had a radio on in, her, um, in the bedroom. And she was sobbing. And we wanted to know, what, what's, what? what's mm. happened? And uh, she said, they just shot Martin Luther King. They just shot Martin Luther King, and my sister and I are trying to get our heads around this. I knew a bit about Martin Luther King, but not a whole lot yeah. in terms of the, just the significant role he had played in the evolution of civil rights in the U.S. But I tell you what, that was then a defining mm -hmm. moment because later that night, that night Washington, D.C., and I think roughly 13 other cities that night went up in flames in the, um, in the U.S., including right there in D.C., and people were out. There was noise in the streets. There was smoke in the air, and it was like, what in the world? And that was when I, um, that was when my life changed, and my, uh, and, and my, my lens broadened around the broader reality of what it, mean, what it means, what it meant, and what it means to be black in America. Do you recall conversations with your parents and others in the community about that? Because you were 12, trying to make sense of this thing. Do you remember what they were saying to you? Yeah, it was, it was then listening over the next few days leading up to, to Dr. King's funeral. It was listening to my parents talk then about the... Um, what that man endured, and everyone in his generation. We sometimes think that we have it tough, but when I looked at, started looking at the, the footage, news footage, of uh, black people out in the streets protesting, particularly in the South, with dogs being uh, just loosed on them, where dogs were attacking them, being beaten with clubs and being fire hydrant hoses, just hosing them down. These brave young folks who would go into white cafes, all white cafes, and sit there, and then these white patrons would come up and just taunt them and swing at them and punch them. And the, the fact that Dr. King was arrested, goodness gracious, I think it may have been a total of 40-something times in his uh, career to put, trust me, I, my life has been easy compared to 
the pioneers in terms of what they had to endure on the front line in just waking, waking America up to the reality that this, we can't be, call ourselves the greatest democracy on earth and have a, um, basically a system of apartheid um, right. existing. And that was, that was, it was, that was the catalyst, mm. I believe, in terms of the black power movement, yep. black pride, black is beautiful, all of those things evolved mm. from the late 60s or so. But how as a 12-year-old do you process that, particularly when you say that your early years you really didn't notice that much? It, that must have been like being slapped in the face. I mean, it, was a, it, was a, it was daunting. It was daunting as I was thinking about the rest of my life mm. in terms of what does this mean. Remember, even then, I was still in an all-black world. So I hadn't, I had never, I didn't meet, I, I had never had a, the first time I had a conversation with a white kid my age was when I was 19. Mm. I'd never met another white kid it, it's, until it's I was 19 that, when it? I went to university. Mm. Yeah. And so it was the day-to-day the -day didn't change for me in that yeah. realm there, but it certainly got me prepared for what would be my entry into the white world, if you will, and, um, and the, the reality of making my way in. But again, I'll say, I don't care what I would consider the worst moment in, mm. in dealing with racism. The pioneers, Dr. King, those folks, um, beaten, shoved, yeah. lynched. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, my generation had it much easier. It, were, did your parents warn you about this coming danger, that it was, it was not safe out there? Not really, not really. I think their role was, my, pa my parent, it was, it, I, th I think in the story last night, I may have mentioned that it was seven years of age when my mother explained to me that my father couldn't read because he um, hadn't gone to school. Hmm. And, uh, and so that was my first, I think my parents were like, how young is, how old is old enough or how young, hmm. how do you let, just let kids be kids? Yeah without sitting your five-year-old down and giving them the history of slavery um, mm. and, you know, that type of thing. So I think my kid, my, my parents just wanted us to just be regular kids, even though they had endured certainly a lot more in their generation mm. than, than we would. But I felt I was reasonably prepared when I walked onto the campus of Uhlenberg College <laughs> for, my, for the first time in 1973, where my world went from all black yeah. to all white in um, a flash of a second. Because you were one of six black students at that That's right, college, one that of five black students five, at, the, right. um, at the time. Muhlenberg, like many colleges and universities <clears throat> in America in the early 70s, so it was called affirmative action, and that is we're going to actively recruit minority students, black students, Hispanic mm -hmm. students, um, Asian students. We want to diversify our campuses with the idea that we are growing a, into the next generation a more diverse pool of people yeah. to contribute to the success of America. So colleges went, actively went into the uh, inner city, uh, in, particularly on the East Coast. There are uh, cities like D.C., Baltimore, Philadelphia, into New York, 
And, uh, and I was fortunate enough to be offered a scholarship at Muhlenberg College in Allentown, Pennsylvania. It must have been something of a culture shock, though. It was, it, <laughs> <laughs> you know. it was, I mean, it was, it's a yeah. Mm. I mean, I, my parents dropped me off. My, um, my uh, brothers and sister came with us. We had um, uh, borrowed someone's car, someone's station wagon, to be able to bring my footlocker along with me. Yeah. And they dropped me off right there at the, um, on, on um, uh, Chew Street is where it was, where Muhlenberg College was. And... Uh-huh. I turned around as they were pulling off to wave goodbye at them, and then I turned back around and I actually started crying. I was just like, what is this? I've (laughs) never, is this like a movie? I've I've never seen so many white people. (laughs) (laughs) It was the first time. That's extraordinary. It was the first time, and there I was, um, uh, walking onto that campus. And uh, you write a little bit about this in your, in your books and how you, your grades suffered because you didn't feel like you belonged. Was there any out, um, outright hostility to you, or was there indifference to you? What, was, what did you find? It was probably more indifference. I didn't, I didn't experience any what I would call... Um, uh, outrageous uh, hostility. Uh, on, in that first semester, uh, one of the white kids in the dorm invited me to some party that was in off campus or wherever, and I walked in and the music was blaring. It was all white folks in there, a lot of drunk guys, and I heard the N-word uh, flare up real quickly like that. And I thought, hmm, I think I'd better just turn around and go back to, I'd better go back to the campus. I wasn't ready to go into that type of mm. a scenario. Um, in my freshman year, there were white students who were curious about what it felt like to be a token, what it felt like to be a quota. <clears throat> and so we would get questions like, um, how's it feel to be a token? What's the, um, uh, how do you feel taking the seat of someone who may be a bit more qualified than you? It was a sort of an, uh, it was an inquiry with a nudge to basically say, hey, um, we want you to remember why it is that you're sitting in that seat. That was the minority experience in terms Mm -hmm. of that. I must say that uh, in general, uh, just like all 18 and 19-year-olds as freshmen, uh, we were just 18 and 19-year-olds. Um, they were a lot of the students were fascinated with my afro, and so they used to. Um, here's what we did. This is me trying to fit in, um, and so, uh, uh, so some of the guys in the dorm we ended up being in some of the same classes, and so uh, they would um, we would meet outside the class just before it was scheduled to start. Let's say at 9 a.m. We would meet outside at 8:55, and I had a huge afro. Huge afro, and um, and so they would blow uh, cigarette smoke into my hair, and then we close it up like this, and then I'd walk into the classroom. <laughs> We'd all walk into the classroom, and then I would let my hair out like that, and the and my hair would start smoking, <laughs> and the professor, and the, they, we were doing it, we were doing it for the professor, um, and, and you know just things like that, 
and, and, and folks just really curious yeah. about, uh, there were a lot of folks just curious about me, my experience. I would say, I, honestly, I would say that in terms of a college uh, environment, me finding my way, um, that it was a, it was a, it was far more of a positive experience mm. than a negative. The negative one, to your point, was in that first semester where I just, it was the first time I didn't, I felt like I didn't belong in yeah. terms of yeah. a fauna, in terms of a sense of family. And uh, it, I struggled because of the five black students we all, we went to, we clustered like this. And we went to breakfast together, and we met to lunch together, and we met up for dinner, and we always sat together. And because that was what, it's what you do when you feel like you need family and kinship. If we were on a black campus, that wouldn't have been the case. But here we were on a white campus, yeah. and we all felt this need to just, you know. Safety in numbers. Safety in numbers, that type of thing. And uh, the white students would come by in the cafeteria and say, why do you guys always sit together? And we would say, why do you guys always sit together? <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, it, 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 but, I, but that was it. There was no, um, I just didn't have a, I, I didn't, I didn't belong, we were still struggling yeah. to belong. Yeah. So they had ticked the box in terms of we have five new black students, mm. but there was no, it was like putting plants in soil that was not fertile. Yeah. In that sense of... So they, so they yeah. didn't follow up with support? In terms of support, there was none. We were pretty much on yeah. our own. There were no... Um, there was, a, I should say, to uh, Janice Williams in the Office of Admissions, a, an African-American woman who uh, was on the staff there. And she took a bit of a mentorship role uh, mm -hmm. over us. And again, it, I'm not trying to describe a horrendous experience, but the, the impact that it had on me was I had, I had been an A student. I had been an A and B student to qualify to get into Muhlenberg, particularly for a scholarship. I always prided myself on, on being a, a, a good student. And in my first semester at Muhlenberg, I earned um, three C's and two D's. Mm -hmm. um, and that was so different for me. And it was like, what's going on here? What's going on? This is... There's, there's something affecting my performance here. And it, I'm, as you may have read in the, um, in the book, Andrew, it was the second semester when a Jewish fraternity... Yes, <laughs> yes I have that here. What is it? Um, Zeta Beta Tau? Zeta Beta Tau, yeah. ZBT. It was rush season. And it, for those of you familiar with the U.S. university <laughs> system for both fraternities and sororities, in the spring semester, the fraternities and sororities rush the freshmen for an, uh, a period of 30 days or so, inviting them down to the house. All the, I mean, it's, it's wonderful to be a freshman on a U.S. campus <laughs> in the second semester because you get wonderful dinners for uh, <laughs> a month or so because you're getting all these invitations yeah. down. But the five of us, or the three black guys, there were two women, <clears throat> The, five, the, the three of us uh, black freshmen, we weren't getting any invites. Mm. So we kept going to dinner over at the cafeteria while the other freshmen were all going down to these houses. And it was three freshmen on the dorm, um, on the floor, on, on, my, on my floor. 
and they were in classes with me, and they had been invited down to ZBT, which was a Jewish fraternity at a, at Muhlenberg was a Lutheran-affiliated uh, university, and uh, ZBT had established itself uh, a couple of decades earlier because Jewish students felt like they didn't have a sense of belonging. So these new freshmen went down to the house and said to the upperclassmen, there's this black guy up in the dorm named Harold, and he isn't getting any invites to dinner. Can we bring him down to dinner? And the upperclassmen said, go up there right now and get him and bring him mm -hmm. down here. And so there I was sitting in my room. It was, I think, five, ten minutes to seven, waiting for the other black students to come <laughs> carry me off to the cafeteria. And a knock is at the door. And I open it, and it's these three freshmen. And they said, the brothers at ZBT would like for you to come to dinner. Would you please mm -hmm. come down with us? And um, that, was a, that was a memorable evening mm -hmm. when I walked into that house and all of these white upperclassmen, these were seniors, I mean, they were like seniors. And they, you know, just walked up to me. There were about 60 of them there. They were having this massive dinner. And they, each of them came up, welcome to ZBT. Welcome, we're glad you could come down for dinner. All of them shook my hand. They took me over to a table. I say, set me down. I wasn't sure what was happening here. This was like, what's happening? I felt like, I felt it, it was like Sidney Poitier in that old movie, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? I don't know if any of you are old enough to remember that movie, but it was like, and the warmth, the yeah. interest in who I was, the, um, I didn't want to leave. Yeah. The dinner was over at about nine and everybody started, um, you know, dissipating, but I didn't want to leave. I didn't want to go back to the dorm. And sure enough, they invited me down again uh, a couple of days later, then again and again, and then they invited me to pledge. And the rest is history. I joined ZBT that semester. My grade shot up. Yeah. I got, ended up with three A's and two B's that following semester. And I make the point that belonging <clears throat> has direct impact on performance. Yeah. It has direct and immediate, tangible impact on performance. I felt like I belonged yeah. for the first time in seven months uh, while there, and it was, it was visceral. Mm. It was visceral, yeah. Andrew. Yeah, that, that's quite a powerful thing, isn't it? And, yeah. and that, that moment has stayed with you all your life. It has stayed with me all my life. I wrote about it in the book I, the, the, in terms mm. of of the, the empathy and what, uh, three forms of empathy. One of those is compassionate empathy. And so in that section on compassionate empathy, I wrote the case story of me going down to dinner and the impact of that and had the great fortune um, maybe six, seven months ago to join a Zeta Beta Tau reunion call uh, where they asked me, in fact, to read that story yeah. um, for them. I want to jump forward a little bit. You joined the military, that was 1986? In 1986. Yeah, so, so what made you want to go into the military? I, um, I, wanted, to, I, I wanted to get some management experience. I, I, would, I studied to be a clinical psychologist. I earned my PhD in 1983. I went to work at a community mental health system in Indiana. 
I was working long hours, and I wanted to be a man. I wanted to be an administrator, but I had to lead something. I didn't have any leadership experience. And so friends of mine said, Harold, you have your PhD. Why don't you go into the U.S. military? It's, um, you know, there's a shortage of medical service officers in all of the branches. Why don't you just go into the military? You can do three years. You can run a mental health clinic, get out, and then... Um, and then go continue your career in mental health, running something. And I thought, hmm. And several people said that to me, and I thought about it. Now, at the t- I, I, I knew that it was illegal to be gay in the military in 1986, but I wasn't gay. Yeah. Uh, and so, at least um, my, um, uh, um, my f- uh, front brain your conscious uh, was trying identity. To, yeah. That's yeah. right, in terms of my conscious identity. So I thought, hmm, that, I can do this. Uh, if, if my father had served in the military, my brother had served in the military, I said, I can do this, I'll be an officer. And um, what was daunting about it was that the application to become an officer in the U.S. Um, military, and it was question 13 on the application. I'd never encountered this any time before that or any time after that. But question 13 was, have you ever voluntarily uh, engaged in uh, any homosexual activity? And the, uh, the, it was a yes and a no. And then a box that said, if yes, please provide details. <laughs> <laughs> So I just, of course, I checked no, and then I signed my name. In in the follow-up interview, they also asked the question, and the guy was real apologetic. Sorry, Dr. Hillman, we we just have to ask this question. But I was married, et cetera, so it was like, oh, no problem, no problem. But I I never forgot that moment, that that was the first time, the only, it was the first time I had been asked to officially decree that I wasn't gay with my signature. So at that moment, what were you feeling when you signed that? Because that, that's, a, that's a, I mean, it's a stupid question, but it's, it's a big question, isn't it? It's a, it, it's a big question. It's a big so question. How, how did you feel at the time when you were signing that? Yeah, it was, it was probably my first little showdown with integrity. It was something that would um, always nag at me uh, a bit, and I, uh, it eventually would culminate in, you know, seven years later, me finally coming to terms with the fact yeah. that uh, I was the furthest thing from an authentic mm. person. And so it did. It was, it was daunting. I remember that experience of... Cause I, uh, Growing up gay in my generation, you were used to denying that you were gay. Mm. I mean, you denied it all the time. I got good at it. You were, it's called deflecting. Mm. Anytime a relative or a friend at school or anybody wanted to sort of, sort of peer in there because they sensed that you might be gay, I was real good at turning the conversation around, yeah. very good at it. But I had never been asked to officially deny it. And I want to take you on your kind of coming out journey, but, but, but first I just want to go back to this thing about signing the, the document. Yeah. Do, does, it, does that moment still sit with you in a, in a negative way? Do you still, do you judge yourself at all about it? Do you have a... 
I have far more compassion for myself now yeah. than I did then. But, but it did for a while, didn't it? It, it, it did. It did. Yeah. It was, um, it was <clears throat> torment. It mm. was, it, essentially, that was me signing myself into um, yeah. a seven-year stint of personal torment. Mm. I, I, I have no regrets about anything that I have done in my life. Yeah. And all of, the, all of these experiences, including <clears throat> that one, have culminated in yeah. me being who I am today. I consider myself to be a very whole person. I had to go through that. Mm. to get to where I am now. I'm glad, there, I'm, I'm glad that I went through that to get to where I am now. I think, you know, as you know, I'm a, I'm a gay man. I hosted yes. a queer television show for nine years. That's right. Back in the, a long time ago. Um, my perspective on that is that we shouldn't have to apologize for the effects of homophobia That's and right. internalized homophobia because all of us coming out, even, even to this day, yeah it's still, you have to take that step. That's Even right. if you have supportive people around you, it's, a, it's still a big thing. It's, it's, and yes. society for so long was oppressive around it. Yeah. So the, the, the shame that many, many gay men and women, even trans folk feel yeah. about their journey, yeah. it's not our fault, is it? I agree, I agree. It was something that um, particularly growing up in the black community. Uh, I've got a number of gay friends back in the U.S. We often would talk about the fact that growing up, black, uh, growing up gay in the black community in the 60s and in the 70s was not a positive experience. It was, it was, I would just say in general it wasn't positive for most gay kids and teenagers coming up in that era. Um, but it was, I knew when I was a young teenager that I was gay, but there was no way. I mean, mm. every Sunday in church, you know, it was not uncommon on any given Sunday to have the minister um, hurl a couple of anti-gay um, uh, statements or, you know, that God detests homosexuality, um, pray your sins away, uh, those types of things. And the uh, uh, and then just the bullying and the harassment. There was a black teenager who, um, who was out, who lived in my neighborhood. His name Vincent Edward Evans, Vincent Evans. And he lived four houses up in this housing project. And Vincent was, I think, uh, maybe 13, 14. I would have been 11 or so. And I used to get, he just used to get beat the, I mean, these bullies would just grab him and beat him, him and a friend of his, mm. um, to a pulp. The ambulance pulling up constantly to pick him up. Mm. And I would stand there as an 11-year-old already knowing that I was gay, and I would stand there thinking, dude, why, why, why be so out? Mm. Why, why, why would you bring that harm on yourself? That was my little 11-year-old brain going, pull yourself in. Yep. You know, like, don't be out. What's, why, would you, why would you attract that kind of treatment to yourself? That was me internalizing this thing that it's, our, it's, it's something bad within us. Keep it contained. Um, now, if I could find Vincent, I would give him the biggest hug in the world for having the courage to do that. But it shaped for me, there was no way I was coming out before I would be, um, 
before I left home. No way whatsoever. My parents, my brothers, etc. My brothers sensed that I might be gay, but they gave me a, a couple of strong nudges in that sense of don't think about yeah. it. In, a, in a, a compassionate, brotherly way. They didn't want to see me get hurt. Yeah. They didn't want to see me become Vincent. Um, but I, I didn't feel safe in the black community. Mm. And, 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 and I think that was pretty common in my generation. Um, it would be easy to assume that it's religion that, that plays a part in that. Right. Can play a part in that. That's right. Do you think something else was going on there within the community as well, in your, your community? Yeah, I think, it, there, I think there was, in addition to the, the religion. Uh, it was, it, this was the 60s. Uh, and again, black people were finding their pride. We had evolved from the N-word to Negroes to colored people uh, to all of a sudden the, the black people. Then all of a sudden there was this hyphenated term, African-American, that began to uh, evolve into the 70s. And, um, and, and black folks were really focused on advocating for black rights and the, anything that might compete with that, yeah. include, including gay rights, just didn't take <clears throat> precedence whatsoever. So I found myself then having to make a choice, and the choice for me was clear in terms of I thought I could hide being gay, but I couldn't hide by being black. So for me, the obvious choice was pick up the banner and the cause around, you know, black power, black is beautiful, and, and pray, this black thi pray this gay thing away. That was my strategy as a teenager. Pray it away. God will, God will help you. And God didn't. And God did. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> Maybe there is a God. There is a God. <laughs> yeah. uh, so President Clinton becomes president. Yes. And there is a commission that he sets up to look at uh, homosexual service men and women yes. in, the, in the armed services. That's right. You were asked to be part of that commission. Yes. You weren't out. Nobody knew that. That's right. So why did they ask you to join it? When, um, when Bill Clinton ran in 1992 for president, he vowed, he, Bill, Bill Clinton was the first candidate of either party to basically say, if you elect me president, I will lift the ban on gay people being able to serve openly in the U.S. military. And, um, and he won. And so there he, in January of 1993, when he was inaugurated, I was, um, I was in the military. I was on my second tour of duty there. I was uh, then teaching at the Air Force Academy. Not only did I enjoy that first tour of duty, I didn't only just go in for three years to stay. I stayed in the military mm -hmm. because all of a sudden I was really loving this thing called leadership. So there I was at the academy. And, and, um, and so the Secretary of, of Defense then uh, established a commission that would focus solely on um, whether or not gay people would be allowed to serve openly in the military. And this commission was going to be uh, assembled in February of 1993, and they were going to be sequestered in Washington, D.C. for the better part of three months. It would be all military personnel. And so uh, who got to serve on this committee were uh, outstanding officers and enlisted personnel. So you had to have an outstanding record of performance to be selected. 
And that's when General Hosmer at the U.S. Air Force Academy called me into his office. I had just won the Outstanding Military Educator of the Year Award in 1992. And so General Hosmer called me into his office and said, uh, Captain Hillman, congratulations. Um, on behalf of the U.S. Air Force, we are sending you to Washington, D.C. to serve on the commission to determine if gay people can serve openly in the U.S. military. <laughs> and there I sat with my heart going like this. I honestly, I thought I was going to have a stroke right there. I'm sure he must have wondered. I went white, if you can imagine that. <laughs> I did. And so there I went into this it was the most daunting experience. Yeah. I wrote the book, The Imposter Syndrome, yeah. uh, because I felt I had the street credentials mm -hmm. to write a book called The Imposter Syndrome, because not only was it a, a syndrome, <laughs> imposter syndrome is where you really are qualified, but you doubt whether you are. Imposter is, you're really an imposter, and you're behind yeah. a mask there. And I went into that experience, and it was the, that was the experience that was the catalyst for me to eventually uh, embrace who I was, because it was, it took me to, um, it took me to the lowest low mm. in that respect there. I sat there for three months. I didn't have a, a, a role. There were th three generals and an admiral. They were in charge. Mm. They were the decision makers. I was a flunky amongst the other uh, uh, number of us. There were, I think, 70 or 80 of us. And, it, and, and I was going to, once the decision had been made, I was in charge of the, uh, defining the education or the training policy around it. But I had absolutely no input on this. But we all got to sit there while anti-gay groups came in mm. to present their case why gay people shouldn't be able to serve openly, and pro-gay groups yeah. came in. And it was a daunting experience. Mm, I can imagine. Quite surreal, I should imagine. It was, it was surreal. Yeah. When the pro-gay groups came in, um, it was just a joke between all of us in the room. The, there was a bowl of fruit over here. Um, on the table over here that they kept, and whenever a pro-gay pro group came in, they put the bowl of fruit right in the middle of the table there um, as a symbolic, it, it was a joke amongst us. Were there bananas on there? Us. Uh, no bananas. Okay. <laughs> yep. But there it was. I, I stared through that bowl of fruit, as, and I'm looking at people who were coming in to basically say, hey, um, uh, with all due respect, sirs, um, roughly 13% of your military is already uh, gay. And so our starting point is not zero, you know, mm -hmm. that type of thing. And the, um, and the cold, frosty reception that, that pro-gay groups would get compared to anti-gay groups yeah. who got longer. Anti-gay groups came in to present research on uh, how homosexuals had a defective gene. <laughs> Uh, seriously, oh, yeah. in terms of genetic structure, how some of Hitler's, Hitler's worst, um, Hitler apparently had this, this hor horrid uh, uh, battalion of soldiers who were all gay because they were vicious, evil people. They came in with that, they hit it from the religious front, esprit, they're going to ruin the morale and the, the, the esprit, of everything. And there, there I sat. 
very, very odd. Were, were there any champions at all within the military who were saying we should do this, we should open it up? Um, no, these were not in a, in that, no, not in a tangible, vocal sense. Yeah. This I, was, I guess it would, it would put suspicion on them, too. It, it would. This yeah. was consultative, but the, the people coming in and out were either ex-military experts in a particular realm, but no, um, it was, it, trust me, in terms of the leadership shadow projected yeah. by those three generals and admiral, anyone who may have been pro-gay in that room would not speak out. Yeah. The, um, when the, when that, um, the pro-gay uh, group came in and said, hey, roughly 13% of your military is already gay, <laughs> when they left, the admiral pounded, he was furious wow. when they left. He pounded the table. He really did. I'm tired of hearing these stats. I'm tired of them coming in here with these stats. He said, I've been in the military 35 years, and I've never, never met anyone gay. <laughs> and there I sat. There I sat. <laughs> I was like sitting right there, and yeah. I just wanted to reach my hand out and say, well, girlfriend, this is your lucky day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've just lost my train of thought now. <laughs> that, that would have been quite a moment, wouldn't it? It was, it was, that was a moment because there I sat, well decorated. We were going to get another medal, actually. That was the thing that really, that was what brought it home for me. When we got, the, the end result of the, the commission was um, they, they, they went back to the, the Clinton administration through the Secretary of Defense to say, we're not lifting the ban. Mm -hmm. And so the Clinton administration came back to them and said, well, you got to do something. Um, you got to meet us halfway. And so the halfway decision, which was made in March of 1993, but not announced until December, because they had to get the messaging right. The, the end result was don't ask, don't tell, don't pursue, which means, okay, we'll, tap, we'll call off the witch hunts, we'll, we'll call them off. We won't actively pursue anyone that we think is gay, but if anyone volunteers that they are gay, then they are out. So as long as you don't tell, as long as we don't ask and you don't tell, you're safe. And I, when I got back to, my, to the Air Force Academy after the commission was disbanded, particularly getting that medal, a meritorious mm -hmm. service medal, which is an outstanding, outstanding service to the United States. Yep. And to, I was, it was a, the most horrible moment, yeah. one of the most horrible moments in my life, standing there with about a thousand people at the U.S. Air Force Academy there to celebrate me getting this medal pinned on my chest yep. as, as an outstanding officer, and I never felt more hollow mm. and empty in my life. And that was, that moment was the moment. Within 48 hours, I sat down with my wife, 4 a.m. in the morning, and um, had the, what I um, consider to be the most difficult conversation I'll ever have with another human being. She, my ex-wife Kim passed away in January of 2020. Um, she was a very loving woman. 
She was very loving in that conversation. She knew that something was eating at me. I had actually been out in the, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't sleep after that pinning on thing. I kept tossing and turning, so I just went out in the living room. And she got out of bed, and, and then she came into the living room, and she found me there crying. And um, that's when we had that conversation. And then um, a few hours later, I walked into my commander's office, Colonel Raul Bion, um, one of my best friends in the world, one of my very best friends in the world, Colonel Bion, a former um, fighter pilot. And he could see immediately when I walked in, Captain Hillman, sit down. What's wrong? What's going on? What's wrong? And I just lost it. And, um, and then I pulled myself together. And then I said, sir, I, um, I have to resign my commission. I can no longer work for an employer who will not allow me to be a whole person. And... Um, he taught me something about leadership that day. Colonel Buran, um, this is why he's a dear friend. Colonel Buran leaned over to me and said, Captain Hillman, fuck that law. He said, you're an outstanding officer. I consider you a friend. And there is no way that you ever feel pressured under my command to leave the military. You leave if you have to. I totally understand what you're saying, but I will never out you. And um, that gave me the space and the latitude to, he could have he easily picked up the phone, mm -hmm. said, um, uh, Captain Hillman has just outed himself, and I would have been administratively discharged within 24 hours. 24 hours, um, but instead he, um, he became a human, he not became, he manifested humanity through his rank as a mm -hmm. colonel, and that taught me about leadership. He reminded me, he said, um, Captain Hillman, slavery used to be legal in this country, mm -hmm. um, and it took people who um, would speak out about that, and um, I just visited him in May when I went back to the States, he, his, his health is failing. And, um, and I just wanted to go by and spend a few days with him and his family um, because um, what a moment, what a moment for me. So you've described two really crucial moments in your life. So when you were in Muhlenberg College. Yes. And the, uh, the fraternity reached out to you. Yes. And accepted you in. Yes. You were almost like a, a, a lone voice or a lone person. That's right. And then in the military, the same thing has happened. Yeah. That someone who, under the law, yes. should have dobbed you in. Yes. But showed you compassion and realized that who you are, are as a person, the, things, the characteristics about you don't matter. You are still a full human being. That's right. And, tho That's and right. those are just two examples you've had dozens and dozens throughout your life. Yeah. But you now put that out into the world as well. Yeah, it's a, um, I just believe, I went too far. I went too far in that. I had to go through that experience from signing my name on that application right through to sitting with Colonel Bjorn and then deciding to leave the military. 
Um, I think I had to go through that experience. I felt the pain, the psychological and physical pain that you endure if you try to hide who you are. It's unhealthy. It's unhealthy. It may not be something as extreme as sexual orientation. It might be an accent where people sometimes feel um, unsafe with their accent. I have a friend here in, um, in New Zealand uh, I met maybe, I don't know, 10 years or so ago when he came over uh, to New Zealand as a teenager uh, from Germany. Uh, he was called Nazi, 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 and within, he, but he was 13, so he, at that age you can adjust and mount, and he Kiwiized his accent. Hmm. Out of the sense of safety, people who, when we are trying to fit in in any organization, any organization has a social order, any, no matter what it is, a church, a civic organization, a small business, a large commercial business, when you walk in there, there is, you sense that there is a requirement to do things a certain way, and we all have to sort of figure out how much of me do I compromise in the interest of fitting in? For me, I had compromised my whole soul, and that was just unsustainable. So I, I'm an advocate. I, sometimes you have to go to the, you have to, you have to reach bottom in order to um, find a sense of purpose in terms of what's right. And it was, it's since then I have really devoted my life to um, promoting authenticity, mm. the power of authenticity and the energy that flows from you when you feel like you don't have to be somebody else just mm. to survive through the day. And we have talked for an hour, so it is time for wow. us to, <laughs> to finish. Thank you so yeah. much. Um, Harold will be signing uh, books out in the foyer. If you don't have one on you, you can purchase one. <laughs> or two, or three. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Tanakwe, you've been listening to a podcast from the 2022 Auckland Writers' Festival Waituhi Otamaki. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.